And then while you're turning to Romans chapter 9, I want to thank Josh Bice for this opportunity, this invitation to preach the Word of God to you tonight. And it has been a very distinct privilege for me to say that I have spoken at every one of these G3 conferences. I have believed in what God is doing in this conference before we ever had the first conference. And it is a great pleasure for me to be able to preach the Word of God to such a receptive group of people. The title of my message tonight is The Doctrine of Sovereign Election and Missions. I want to begin reading what will be our text that we will look at tonight, Romans chapter 9. I want to begin reading in verse 1. This is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and all-sufficient word. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now come to verse 6 for for the sake of time, or excuse me, verse, verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, who when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So, then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, 
although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even so, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. The greatest missionary who ever lived was the Apostle Paul. And no man ever blazed a trail to take the gospel to those who had never heard the name of Christ like did the Apostle Paul and risked his life as he did. His passion was to go into all the known world to preach Christ and Him crucified. Paul was the epitome of a true missionary, one sent with the gospel. And he desired not to build upon another man's foundation. He did not want to reap what another man had sowed. This drove Paul to faraway lands to preach the gospel in places where the gospel had never been heard. He was a missionary par excellence. Yet, at the same time, no one was stronger on the doctrine of sovereign election than was the Apostle Paul. Paul was a sovereign grace man. He was a doctrines of grace preacher. In fact, he stood himself as exhibit A of being a trophy of the sovereign grace of God. For it was the Apostle Paul who was on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 with letters in hand to apprehend the believers and to drag them back to Jerusalem to stand trial and very probably to be stoned to death just like Stephen was after his defense of the gospel before the Sanhedrin. And he was on that Damascus road. Paul was not looking for Christ. He was looking to apprehend the believers. Jesus appeared to him on that road and knocked him off of his high horse. And in a moment, he was suddenly converted by sovereign grace. And from that point on, Paul knew the power of the sovereign grace of God because it was that which rescued him from ruin. And for the rest of his life, Paul preached and taught the doctrines of grace. And when you read his epistles, it is usually in chapter 1, verse 2 or 3 or 4, that Paul is already bringing up the doctrines of grace. As we come to Romans 9 we come to the monumental chapter in the entire Bible that towers over the landscape of sacred Scripture that testifies to the sovereignty of God in salvation. And what we find in this chapter so uniquely is how the Apostle Paul takes missionary zeal in one hand and how he takes the supreme authority of God in salvation with the other hand. 
and how he brings the two together in one presentation of the truth that becomes a juggernaut of truth. It is all here in this one chapter, both missions and the sovereignty of God. It's here in one passage. It is here by one preacher igniting one passion. And so tonight I want us to walk through this text and for us to be reminded again that the doctrine of sovereign election is not a hindrance to missions. It is the doctrine of sovereign election that empowers and ignites missions, and it is the doctrine of sovereign election that guarantees the success of missions around the world. And if I did not believe in the doctrine of election, I would not go to the mission field. Because it is this truth that states that there are a people whom God chose from before the foundation of the world that God will save and there is nothing that will hinder them from coming to faith in Christ when the word of God is made known to them. So I want you to note first, in the first five verses, Paul's burden for perishing sinners. And Paul begins this Mount Everest of a chapter by expressing his deep, heart-wrenching burden for those who are without Christ. And so he begins in verse 1, which I've already read. He states, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Paul is saying, if I have ever told you the truth, I'm telling you the truth now. He is speaking out of the depth of his being. He is stressing and even overstressing that he is bearing witness of what is in his bones, what is in his heart. And he even in verse 1 calls Christ to testify that he is bearing witness to the truth. He is not exaggerating. He he is not speaking beyond the mere truth that is in his heart. No, he says, I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. Verse 2, that I have a great sorrow. This word great is megas, from which we get the English word mega. Paul, Paul has a gigantic sorrow in his soul, and it is for those who are without Christ. Paul is not mechanical in the ministry. He is not stoic in his service of the gospel. His heart is about to leap out of his chest as he has great sorrow and unceasing grief. It is constant. It is throbbing on the inside of his soul. Morning and afternoon and night, day after day, unceasing grief. It is an all-consuming pain. Paul says, I live with this burden that is heavy upon me. And he says, it's in my heart at the end of verse 2. Meaning, it's not a superficial feeling on the facade of his life. But it is down in the very epicenter of his being. And he says in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed 
that Greek word anathema means to be damned. It means to be devoted to destruction and eternal hell. And Paul knew that he could not lose his salvation in Christ. Just read Romans 8, 29 and 30. And verses 31 to, to 39 at the end of the previous chapter. But Paul's heart is literally beating and pounding and exploding with, within his soul. And he is willing to be separated from Christ if he could only be the means by which God would use to bring the gospel to his fellow Jews who are lost and who are perishing and who are under the wrath of God. And though Paul has burned his bridges behind him when he came to faith in Jesus Christ and left the world system behind him, he did not leave his affection for those who are lost in the world. He wanted to run back if he could as though into a house that is on fire in order to rescue and snatch those who are perishing. Paul is saying that he is willing to lose Christ if they could but gain Christ. He is willing to go to hell if they could but go to heaven. He is willing to suffer damnation if they could but savor salvation. He is willing to endure the lake of fire if they could but once drink from the river of life. And he says at the end of verse 3, For the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, and by this he's referring to his fellow Jews. It's not enough that Paul knew Christ and then he was saved. He, he must have his fellow bonds, uh, brethren be saved as well. And he says in verse 4, who are Israelites, meaning physical Jews. And he now says eight things about them. Let me just run through this list in verse 4. Who are Israelites, number one, to whom belongs the adoption as sons. Uh, they are the chosen nation who are just like a, a firstborn son. Exodus 4.22, and the glory refers to the special saving revelation from God concerning who He is and the way to Him, the path of salvation. And the covenants refer to the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant. So much has been given to Israel. And the giving of the law, referring to the Mosaic law, the moral law, the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the temple service, referring to the entire sacrificial system of the priest and the sacrifice, and in making a, an atonement for sin, and the promises, referring to the promises of the coming Messiah, verse 5, whose are the fathers, referring to Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, the, the patriarchs of, of Israel. And then finally, and from whom is the Christ? Jesus was born a Jew. He was born of the, in the Messianic lineage, the greater son of David, the greater son of the promise. And as he mentions Christ, and to whom who has come from the loins of Israel... He says concerning Christ in verse 5, who is over all, a reference to the 
absolute supreme sovereignty of Christ. Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. And then he says, God blessed forever. That is a statement of the absolute deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was not only truly man, but that he was truly God. He was the God-man. He was God in human flesh. This says he is God-blessed forever. And then Paul adds amen to what he has just said. And what we learn here is that Paul is torn up on the inside at the very thought that his own people, his own brethren, are perishing without Christ. And he cannot bear the thought. It is ripping his heart out of his chest. He is distraught. He is devastated over these lost souls. This is the very heartbeat that we must have for missions for reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ that is perishing this very moment and is under the wrath of God and without hope. We must have no rest until all find their rest in Christ. We must go until all know. We must speak until all hear. We must preach until all believe. And there must be this burden within us, just like it was in the Apostle Paul, that dominates us and drives us to take the gospel to all people on all continents. It was Jesus in Matthew 9 and in verse 36, upon seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them. And out of the original Greek, this word felt compassion really means out of the bowels. Out of the very depth of our Lord's being, as he looked at the, the crowds and saw them as sheep without a shepherd, it so moved him that he felt compassion for them. It was John Knox who said, give me Scotland or I die. It was George Whitfield who said, give me souls or take my soul. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, it is better to die than to live if souls be not saved. If we are to fulfill the Great Commission, if we are to reach the world for Christ, there must be this same driving passion and depth of feeling for those without Christ of which Paul writes here. And Paul will frame this in Romans 10 in verse 1, by saying, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Paul was not just coldly academic about the state of the lost world. He didn't just write it off as, well, that's just the sovereignty of God. No, Paul, rightly so, is the supreme example to us after Christ himself of what must be stirring within our soul and within the depths of our being. Do you have a heart for lost people? Do you see the crowds and feel compassion? Do you see what's on, on the newspaper and on television? And does your heart not leap out of your chest 
and want them to know Christ. But in the midst of this this plea that just is like an artesian well that just comes shooting up out of the depth of Paul's soul, beginning in verse 6, is the most significant text in the entire Bible on the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation. And what we see here, if there was no other passage in the entire Bible, and there are other passages, but we see living next to each other like neighbors across the fence, yet joining hands, we see on one hand a burden for lost, perishing souls, and on the other hand, immediately in the same context, Paul's boldness and his belief in the doctrine of sovereign election. Notice how verse 6 begins. It begins with the word but. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why would he say that? Because he understands that that the nation Israel will be saved in the last days. He will go into that in great detail in Romans chapter 11, that all Israel will be saved. But as he looks around, he sees an apostate nation. He, He sees Israel with hardness of heart and with no desire for the gospel. He sees Israel that has just crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And how he squares this, he wants us to know that it is not that the Word of God has failed. He says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, there is a true Israel within the larger circle of physical Israel. And true Israel are those who are regenerated by the Spirit of God and brought into the kingdom of God by sovereign election, by sovereign grace. And he says in verse 7, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. In other words, just because they are born a physical Jew does not mean that they are a spiritual Jew. There is always a remnant within the larger circumference. He says, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And there he begins to hint at the doctrine of sovereign election, that it would be the promise would come not through Ishmael, but it would come through Isaac. So verse 8, that is, it is not the children of the flesh, meaning physical Jews, who are the children of God, meaning the true children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And from this point on, Paul now throws down onto the table the trump cards for the doctrine of election, which is that from before the foundation of the world, before time began, in eternity past, God the Father chose out of the whole human race that has fallen in Adam 
and is perishing under, under his own just wrath. God has chosen his elect. God has chosen a bride for his son. And it is based upon nothing good that he sees in those who are chosen. In fact, he chooses them not because of them. He chooses them in spite of them. The reason is found in the eternal counsels of God alone, and it is bubbling up because of His sovereign love that He chooses to set upon His elect and that it guarantees that they will come to faith in Christ at the appointed time, and they are scattered all over the world, and they are in every nation, and they are in every country, and they are of every tribe and tongue. This doctrine of election in no way discourages the work of missions. This doctrine of election actually inflames our passion for missions. The doctrine of election pours gas onto the fire of missions. The doctrine of election ignites missions and it empowers missions. Election is a great missionary doctrine. Why? Because it is the doctrine of election, as I've already said, that guarantees the success of missions that Christ will not die in vain, that the gospel will not come back void, that there will be a bride for the Lord Jesus, that there will be a church, that there will be those who are dead in trespasses and sin, who will be raised from the grave of their own iniquities, and who will be brought to faith in Jesus Christ. It is the doctrine of election that teaches that there is a people whom God will save. And without the doctrine of election, we are left without confidence. We are left without a certain hope. We are left only to look to ourselves and our, and our own methodologies but it is the doctrine of election that enlarges our faith and gives us a daunting courage in the face of all opposition that as we go forth and preach the gospel in other lands, even if we have to lay down our life as a martyr, the eternal purposes of God will march forward triumphantly and every single one of God's chosen elect will come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is the glorious triumph of election in the cause of missions. So beginning in verse 9, I want to give you some words to teach us about the doctrine of election. Some individual words that will specify certain truths, glorious truths. I want you to note first, it is an unmerited choice. Uh, beginning in verse 9, we see that the choice is made not based upon anything good foreseen in the one chosen. In verse 9, and this is the word of promise, and he now quotes 
Genesis 18, verse 10, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. That son was Isaac, who was chosen by God from before the foundation of the world, passing over Esau. And then verse 10, the next generation, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, and those twins, one was named Jacob, and the other was named Esau. Verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so the basis was not upon anything in them, and it's nothing foreseen if for no other reason. Let me just tell you this. God has never looked down the proverbial tunnel of time and ever learned anything. All that God sees is what He has already foreordained. And so He says, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. And so the salvation rests upon God's choice before the twins were ever born, and it rests upon God's effectual sovereign calling within time. The whole matter of salvation rests ultimately with those whom God chose before time and those whom God calls within time. It is an unmerited choice. Their destiny was already marked out before either twin entered into the world. A second we see in verse 12, it's an unexpected choice. Because as God makes His choice, God most often chooses the very opposite individual than whom man would choose. So He says in verse 12, it was said to her, and He now quotes Genesis 25, 23, the older will serve the younger. And at this time, the birthright went to the older son, and the younger son would serve the uh, older son. But in this case, God chose not the older for salvation. He chose the younger for salvation, and it would be the older that would serve the younger. This is the way God chooses he chooses the very opposite of what you and I would expect. I mean, if we were starting the church, we would, we would choose the brightest and the best. We would choose the richest and, and the most beautiful. We, we would choose the, those in the world who are of highest stature. But James 2.5 says, God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. And in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, God says that consider your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many noble, but God has chosen the base things of the world to confound the wise and the wicked. And the reason God chooses to reach all the way down to the bottom of the barrel and to save the least likely person and to use them to bring glory to Himself is that all the the praise goes to God for what comes of their life. Nobody can say, well, look at that church. No wonder they're so successful. Look at all those rich people. Look at all those powerful people to go to church there. No, God delights in choosing those that are the leftovers of the world 
predominantly in order to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the way God has chosen to operate. Every one of us here tonight who are in Christ, every single one of us should say to God, why me, God? But why did you choose to set your heart of saving love upon me? Third, I want you to note it was a loving choice. In verse 13, we read that God has a special love for those whom He has chosen to save that far exceeds the general love that He has for the non-elect. You see, God does not love everyone the same. God has a special saving love for those whom He has chosen. And so He says in verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is a quote from Malachi 1 verse 2, that God set His heart of saving affection upon Jacob and all of his elect and passed over Esau whom he hated. I don't think that means he just loved Esau less. I think it means that God has, God is angry with the wicked every day, as the psalmist says. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards said. And to tell you the truth, I can understand why Esau was hated. I cannot understand how Jacob was loved. And earlier in Romans 8 and verse 29, it says, and those whom he foreknew, if you know anything about the original Greek language, you know that that does not mean foresight. You know what that means, that God previously loved his elect. And to know someone is to love someone in biblical language. And foreknowledge means those whom God previously loved from before the foundation of the world. You see, the doctrine of election is one of the most loving truths taught in the Bible. And to hear some people argue about it and, and combat and, 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 and rise up against it saying that it is a harsh doctrine, have no understanding of what the truth is, that this is one of the most loving doctrines Jacob I loved, that God, if you're in Christ tonight, that before time began, God chose to set His saving love upon you for no reason other than God chose to love you. He chose to love us when we were unlovely. It was a loving choice. And God passed over all the others and left them to their just punishment. And please note, fourth, it's a merciful choice. In verse 14, we read, what shall we say then? And what Paul does here in verse 14, he'll do it later in verse 19, is he anticipates an, imag an imaginary objector. Uh, Paul can, in his mind, it is as though he is saying, I know exactly the objections you want to raise. And you want to now say, that's not fair. 
And so in verse 14, Paul, like a, uh, an attorney, bringing it out before the other attorney can bring it out, Paul says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? There's no unfairness with God, is there? There is no inequity with God, is there? Please note the next four words. May it never be. It's two words in the Greek, meganoito. It is the strongest denunciation and denial of something that has been set forth. It means a thousand times no. No, no, never. God is not unfair. And the reason that this is brought into effect in the discussion on election is we must understand this. God does not owe salvation to anyone. You don't want complete fair because hell is fair for you. You want mercy. You don't want fairness. Everyone in heaven is there by mercy. Everyone in hell is there by fairness. So we read in verse 15 that this is a merciful choice. For he says to Moses, and he now quotes Exodus 33, verse 19, and you might be asking, why does he keep quoting the Old Testament? And one reason among others is this, what Paul is teaching us is nothing new. This has been in the Bible from the very beginning. This has been taught in Genesis and Exodus and throughout the entirety of the Old Testament all the way to Malachi 1, verse 2. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy, referring to saving grace, on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is the speaker. And let us understand this here tonight. God is free to give what is undeserved to whomever He pleases. That is called mercy. It is the very antithesis of justice. And all who are chosen by God for salvation from before the foundation of the world are those who receive mercy, that which they do not deserve, and all who are passed over by God and not chosen for salvation actually receive specifically what they do deserve, which is eternal damnation. There is no injustice with God. In verse 16, fifth, we see it's a divine choice. He says in verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. The ultimate destiny of your life is in the hands of God. It is not in your own hands. And it does not depend on your will. Ultimately, there is only one free will in the universe, and it is the free will of a sovereign God in heaven. 
And it does not man depend upon the man who runs because Romans 3 verses 11 through 12 says, there's none who seeks after God, no, not one. And if it was left up to you and me, all of us were running away from God. It was God who had to run us down. The only true seeker is God. And he says at the end of verse 16, but on God who has mercy. There are some people who want to do an in-run on this profound truth and say, well, this only deals with nations. That God chose this nation but passed over this other nation. Oh, no. You, you didn't read the earlier verses. The, the lights were out when you read those verses. It was within nations that God chose one and passed over the other. Some people try to do an in run on this and say, no, this is, means to be chosen for service. We're going to see here in a little bit, he talks about vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. We're not talking about nursery workers here. We're talking about the eternal destinies of every human being who has ever lived. And so if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you did choose to believe in Him, but you believed in Him and you chose to believe in Christ only because God first chose you to believe in Him and sent the Holy Spirit to raise you from the dead, to give you the gifts of repentance and faith, and to draw you to Christ and to birth you into His kingdom. It's all of God. It's not God and us. It's not us. It is God and God alone. Six, it's a discriminating choice. In verses 17 and 18, we see that God is free to pass over some lost sinners in order that He might save other lost sinners, and it is all with an all-wise purpose and design. In verse 17 we read, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my heart might be, pro and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. You see, this choice to pass over Pharaoh it was not for no reason, but God had higher purposes, greater purposes to harden his heart and then to raise him up so that Pharaoh would be virtually a pawn in the hand of God to turn his heart to release the people of God out of Egyptian bondage that they might make their way back to the promised land. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and like rivers of water, he channels it whichever way he will. This is God controlling the hearts of even reprobates to carry out his eternal plan and purpose here upon the earth. It was God who appointed Pharaoh for this, and it was God who hardened his heart. God was not the author of the evil that was in the heart of Pharaoh. That evil was already there. And Pharaoh had already hardened his heart against God. And once Pharaoh, with evil in his heart, had hardened his heart against God, 
then God hardened Pharaoh's heart to carry out his own predetermined purpose and plan to use him for his eternal purposes. So verse 18, so then he, God, has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. This is the discriminating choice that the sovereign God of heaven and earth makes, working in whose hearts he chooses to work in, and hardening other hearts to use them in a totally different way. He's got the whole world in his hands. He has all of humanity in his hands to do with them as it pleases him. In verse 19 and 20, we see seventh. It's an unaccountable choice. In other words, God is not accountable to any of us for the choices that he makes. No man can call God into account and demand an apology or demand an explanation. And so in verse 19, we read, you will say to me then, and he anticipates now the second imaginary objector. It is as though Paul is saying, I know exactly what you're thinking. And I want to bring it out and put it on the table so that I can answer it. This is what I know that you are thinking. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? How can God hold any man responsible for his sins if he has been predetermined for eternal destruction? And Paul answers in verse 20 with a strong, stinging rebuke. It says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, O little man, O puny man, O dust of the earth, O less than nothing, O little grasshopper, who are you? Who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Such an objection is arrogant, it is irreverent, it is foolish. God is not answerable to our questions. In other words, Paul says, you have crossed the line with God. God will not be subpoenaed and brought into the courtroom of any little minds with our inferior thinking and be put on the witness stand and God be cross-examined by us so that we may, so that we may render a verdict on God's choices, whether He is found acquitted or guilty in the courtroom of our own mind. God is not on trial. Mankind is on trial. God owes us no further explanation than what He has given. God is God. And we need to remember who we are and who God is. Salvation is of the Lord. And then in verse 22 and 23, it's a glorifying choice. God exercises His sovereign will to bring about His greatest glory. Verse 22, what if God, 
although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. God is glorified even in the damnation of the reprobate. God's wrath is put on display in the reprobate. God's power to damn is put on display in the reprobate. God's patience to endure their unbelief is put on display in the reprobate. Attributes of God, wrath, power, patience are showcased in the reprobate as God puts on display His attributes that bring glory to Himself. And then in verse 23, and He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. God chooses to put on display wrath, power, and patience in one, and in the other vessel, the one whom He has chosen for salvation, God puts other attributes on display in them. God magnifies His mercy and His grace and His saving love. That's what is showcased in vessels of mercy. But either way, God is glorified. Verse 23, which I just read, if a human potter has the right over the dirty clay to fashion objects as he chooses, then God certainly has the same right with fallen, depraved humanity. God is the potter with sovereign rights to make what he desires of man who is but, who is but clay. He is but, he is but dirt that is marred and flawed and, and filthy. This is God's glorifying choice as He puts His attributes on display, some on vessels of wrath and others on vessels of mercy, that all rises up to magnify His name. And finally, in verse 24 and following, it's a worldwide choice. He says in verse 24, even us whom He also called. That's the effectual sovereign call of God out of the world. Not only among Jews, which has been His whole argument through this entire chapter beginning in verse 1, but He has now, but also from among Gentiles, meaning the vast multitude of nations around the globe. God has His elect in faraway lands, in the four corners of the earth. He has His elect among every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. And He says in verse 25, I will call those who are not My people, My people. And those who are not beloved, beloved. And this is why we send out missionaries, because God has His elect in all of the nations of the world, and we go to preach the gospel, and we have a burden within our heart and soul for their salvation, and we do not know who is elect and who is not elect, so we preach the gospel to every living person. 
We preach the gospel to the whole world. And as we go, it is with the confidence that those whom the Father has chosen before the foundation of the world, when the gospel is preached at the appointed time, those who are dead in trespasses and sin among the elect will be raised to life in Jesus Christ. It is only by this we read the fulfillment of what Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It is the absolute sovereignty of God that guarantees the success of missions. And were it not for the doctrine of sovereign election, all missions would be an abysmal failure. It is this truth that emboldens us It gives us confidence. It puts a triumphant stride in our faith. It sends us forth to the corners of the earth, knowing that God goes before us and that God has already marked out hearts and that when we bring the gospel to them, God will bring them to Jesus Christ, all according to His eternal plan and purpose. No, this is no hindrance to missions. This is high-octane fuel in our tanks that drive us to the mission field to be a part of what God is doing. As I close, I must say this. As you find yourself here tonight without Christ, and with all of this vast number of people There will be many here tonight who have never been born again, who have never come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And you may be saying to yourself, how can I know if I'm elect? How can I know if I'm chosen to believe? It's very simple. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you will put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you, you may know that you are numbered among the elect of God. You do not know. No one knows until they've come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so I call you tonight. I summon you tonight. I invite you to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you that your salvation does not lie in your hands. Your eternal destiny is in the hands of God. And so come to God. Come to Christ. Humble yourself. Call out to God. Say, God, have mercy upon me, the sinner. And Jesus says, Him who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my burden is easy and my yoke is light. The Savior is calling you this very moment to step out of the world, to leave your sins behind, and to come all the way to saving faith in Jesus Christ. If any man thirsts, Jesus said, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Just come to Christ. 
come to faith in Jesus Christ this very moment, this very night, and He loves to gather in lost sinners. He loves to put His mercy and His grace upon those who humble themselves and lower themselves and beg for His forgiveness. Come to Christ. Come to Him in humility and with saving faith. And He will not send you away. He will gladly bring you into His bosom. And He will wash away your sins. He will clothe you with His righteousness. He will adopt you into His family. He will put His Spirit within you. And He will walk with you and He will lead you every step of the way. And one day when you come to death's doorsteps, it will usher you immediately into the very presence of God where He has been preparing a place for you. And He will receive you unto Himself and He will take you to the throne of grace and He will introduce you to the Father and He will give you a crown. And you will take that crown and you will immediately cast it back at His feet because you will realize in that moment then more than at any time that it was He who chose you It was He who predestined you. It was He who called you to Himself. This crown does not belong on my head. This crown must be cast back at His feet. May you believe in Jesus Christ tonight and be numbered among those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Let us pray. Father, give us understanding of the truth of Your Word tonight how Paul's heart was broken for the lost, and how your truth of sovereign election guaranteed the success of his missionary journeys and the rest of his life as he preached the gospel, God, pour concrete and cement into our very backbone and faith by this truth of your supreme authority over the eternal destinies of all mankind. Father, we pray this to you in the name of the Son, recognizing that you are the potter. In Jesus' name, amen.